Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast with me, Ollie Henderson. Today, I welcome Danny Fortson to the show. Danny is the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times and the host of Danny in the Valley. Anyone who reads my newsletter will know that I'm a regular listener to his podcast on which he consistently manages to invite fascinating founders of some established and emerging tech businesses. They're attempting to solve some of the world's most exciting and important challenges. During our conversation, we discuss tech's approach to remote work and why although some founders and venture capitalists are choosing to leave California, Danny still believes it will remain the global innovation hub. We also discuss what he considers to be the most exciting future tech innovations, the growth of blockchain, crypto and Web3, and how new business models are changing the way we think about work. If you enjoy this show, please check out previous episodes, like my conversations with Azim Azar and Draw Poleg. Also check out my newsletter, in which I'll be writing something about our conversation at some point this week. Until then, make sure you subscribe to the show, and if you have a moment, please rate it. For now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Danny Fortson. I started by asking for his thoughts on the crazy last 18 months and how that's affected the tech industry. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been wild. I mean, just like everybody, you know, just um, the whole way of working has shifted pretty fundamentally. And you just watching as, you know, this kind of like the web oligarchy, if you call it, if you like, you know, the top four or five, six companies just absolutely doubling down on their advantages and their profits and their sales mm. and just exploding in value while, you know, at least initially, the world seemed to be kind of crumbling around us. They just, you know, the strong have got stronger. So it's been quite amazing to just witness all of that and also just how the, you know, companies are adapting. Actually, in terms of people going into the office, what's the situation like there? Mass generalization seems to be that the tech companies have said, work remotely as long as you like or whenever you like. Yeah, the tech industry is a little bit unique in that it is all so... It's, it's extremely white collar for the most part. So it's quite easy for these companies to be like, well, you know, you can just work from wherever you want. Um, and that's broadly been what a lot of the companies have been doing. So much so that, in you know, downtown San Francisco is very bizarre right now. It's kind of a ghost town um, mm. because a lot of the big tech companies, Uber and Twitter and, you know, Pinterest, all these companies, you know, brands we know about that, that we know, a lot of them have huge offices down there. And they've, um, in Twitter's case, they said, you know, they're going to be, I think they said they're remote first or hybrid first or whatever. Pinterest paid $90 million cash to get out of a new development that they had committed to because they're like, well, we're just completely changing how we work and we don't need all this office space. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's a strange, it's a strange place to walk around downtown San Francisco, which before was very lively and full of startups and full of, you know, and bigger companies. And now, you know, there's huge vacancy rates and it's not clear how that's all going to play out what's the feeling of the people on the ground because there's quite a few people who are up in sticks and moving to texas seems to be mm. a common route is there a feeling among the tech community that it's going to change back i mean a pinterest decision presumably is based on that 90 million is a drop in the ocean compared to rents that they would be having yeah. to otherwise pay yeah no i think well i think the the whole I think the this idea that, you know, Silicon Valley, its primacy has been completely blown up. 
um, and it's now work from anywhere and Silicon Valley doesn't matter anymore and all that stuff. I think that is both true to a degree and also wildly overblown to a degree. So work from anywhere is a thing and you do have, you know, clusters that have cropped up in places like Miami and Austin, both in states that not coincidentally have zero uh, state income tax. Yes. Um, but I think generally um, people aren't too freaked out about, oh man, this is the end of Silicon Valley. This is the end of the tech industry uh, here because it's a very, still a very, very unique place where you have this whole infrastructure in addition to the companies that have helped build these companies. So, you know, venture capitalists, lawyers, consultants, PR people, engineers, all of these people who have, who are very, very good about building very big machines, about taking an idea and taking it global, um, which is a unique set of skills uh, and capital and people willing to make those bets that really is unique to this place. And a lot of that is still sticking around. Yes, you'll have a lot more people working elsewhere but i still think the kind of primacy of silicon valley is still pretty strong yeah it's, it's interesting i mean it's clearly a bit of a political angle from some of those moves as well let's be honest the financial uh, considerations probably come first yeah a lot of it is couched in like oh you know california is terrible and you know it's the end of it's the end of the tech industry and oh i'm so glad to leave but really you know people aren't going to places that pay more taxes <laughs> <laughs> they are you know texas and florida are two of the big uh, kind of beneficiaries and they are uh, they are t state tax free which is not to be minimize it it just kind of sticks it sticks in the craw bit where you're kind of like come on what if you're really just want to save money just say that that's fine we're all yeah. capitalists here we get it um, but the kind of couching it in something other than what it is uh, is you know it's lame I think <laughs> yeah I, I listened to you chatting to Jeff Lawson from Twilio the other day Oh, yeah, he was great. Yeah, he sums it up pretty well, didn't he? Yeah, well, he's just like, look, we came here. We've done amazingly well out of this, this ecosystem I referenced that helped us go from nothing, from an idea on a piece of paper to, you know, a $60 billion company. Now is not the time to cut and run and be like, yeah. you know, thanks, but now we're out of here now that we've made our billions. Now is the time to double down and be like, you know what, this place helped make us let's help make it better and stick around and help do that. Um, so I think broadly that is what is happening. I think there's some very noisy people on Twitter who are um, saying the opposite, but I think it is, it is more, I think the noise is far greater than the actual movement. If we looked at, if we really just looked at the numbers, you must come across people coming up with new ideas all the time and some fall by the wayside some have gone nuts but there seems to have been some companies that have emerged from what's happened which were unexpected or at least to use the cliche it's accelerated the trend yeah. at which we've adopted them yeah i mean i think it's more about just you know companies that were doing well are now doing stupendously well and i'm not talking mm. just about um, you know, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, um, that's, those are obvious, but other companies like you mentioned Twilio or a company like Stripe, um, you know, if you just look at what's happened with e-commerce, um, yeah. or telehealth or some of these things where like all of a sudden, you know, what you were still maybe doing X amount of your shopping online 
or X amount of your kind of healthcare via, or in my case, zero healthcare via like telehealth. Yeah. All of a sudden you're like, well, I can do, you completely ch- shift your kind of operating model. You're like, well, now I can do most of that online. I can kind of get anything I need instantly online and start doing things um, that you hadn't previously. And so the companies that are in the middle there that are selling, you know, the picks and shovels, so to speak, um, for those transitions have just exploded. I mean, and I referenced Stripe. I mean, they went from, I think, a $30 billion valuation to a $95 billion valuation, and they're going to go public soon, probably add much more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, Which if you just look at, that the rates of growth those companies are experiencing, it is, it's extraordinary. Uh, it really is um, just the kind of revolution that is happening at these companies. And again, they're kind of not the sexiest companies, but they're the companies that are kind of lubricating all of these massive shifts. And they're the ones that are doing really, really well. This is sort of perception, at least this is my perception of some of the uh, more senior people in their tech companies. I mean, take Zuckerberg last week and that, the video mm-hmm. the meta launches last week yes started much mockery and amusement <laughs> online <too. laughs> um, but it seems to be like this mass delusion that they're under that they are not perhaps causing the damage to the many parts of people's lives that seems so obvious to the rest of us is it just the very top brass that are suffering from that is this the hubris which comes from being such a powerful person or does it filter down it throughout the organization so you must be able to speak to people within within facebook who aren't yeah. the, the, the leadership team are they fully aware of the concerns that society as a whole has about their products or are they do they, do they buy into the myth no well i mean so you obviously you have a lot of kool-aid drinkers who are like yes you know we're saving the planet um by you know helping people share cat videos or whatever um <laughs> But I think broadly, you know, I think Zuckerberg is a unique case because just the sheer size of his service, three used by 3 billion people every month. I mean, it's, you know, a good chunk of the planet. Um, and his default setting is anti-privacy. Effectively, mm-hmm. it always has been going back from the very beginning. Um, and it's his, you know, worldview um, that is unshakable um, and that his core his core motivating um, his core motivation is has been and always will be growth mm. if you stop growing go like you know stop growing stopping growth equals death for him and it comes at kind of all costs and he does view the world through these rose colored glasses of like yeah there's going to be some collateral damage but i have to keep growing i have to keep growing and this is consistent from when he launched the facebook 17 years ago as a way to like rate the attractiveness of women um you know it's good start yeah exactly um so he's he's i think a unique case but i do think you know facebook has between contractors and full-time employees over a hundred thousand people working there hmm. um google i think is around three hundred thousand people people most people are you know, doing work inside those companies are trying to do good work and trying to, and are not good, you know, kind of just like, oh yeah, what we're doing is great. You know, they, they do have a nuanced view of what they're doing. They're trying to make it better. Um, but of course, I just feel like that, that it's very hard to communicate that because at the end of the day, the result is the result. You know, um, YouTube is YouTube. It's full of what it's full of. And Facebook is, mm. 
is full of what it's full of. And I think the problem is, which nobody has a solution for, is these companies have all done wildly better than anybody could have ever imagined. They have gone gone to a scale that nobody could have fathomed. And the problem is that no matter how good your systems are, if you're being used by billions of people, a 0.5% um, leakage that of you know content, whether it be you know terrorism or suicide, you know content, whatever it may be, if a, if only 0.5% uh, of that gets through, that is still seen by hundreds of millions of people yeah. or tens of millions of people, and that's the problem. And it's a problem that's not ever going to be solved. Um, no matter how much hand-wringing we do or, or how many people they hire or how smart the algorithms are. As you said, you know, it's got so big that it is impossible to wrap your arms around it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is remarkable, isn't it? When you think about the agglomeration of talent within a place, what do you see as being the most exciting sort of innovations going on at the, at the moment? I mean, it's kind of, there's a lot happening at once and, um, I was talking to a guy recently and he was, he was, we were talking about, you know, why do things seem to be happening and scaling so much quicker than they used to? And part of it is, you know, just, uh, what he referred to it as like, you know, it's like almost like technology as it, as it matures, you know, it becomes a base layer upon which you build another one and it gets easier. You know, I had somebody on the podcast, uh, a year and a half ago, and she was involved. She was a founder in one of the in the first dot com wave, and she said it would cost you know I think it was two million dollars to start a website, mm. um, and it required a team of engineers, and it'd be really painstaking, it'd be very difficult, and now it is effectively zero. Um, and that and that kind of it's almost like compound interest, yeah. Um, that compound interest of technology upon technology upon technology that is really driving some pretty incredible stuff. And what I think is interesting to me is, you know, um, the, the kind of the melding of biology and machine learning kind of, you know, heavy duty computing and coming up with just diagnostics, for example, finding, you know, the needle in the haystack in the blood in your blood uh, that might find stage zero cancer that a human could is, is impossible for a human to find. Yeah. There's things like that where you're like, okay, this is this is a really hard problem, but like first principles, it is possible to crack and we are working on it. Um, and so you start to see these little shoots of like, oh, wow, technology is, it's it's kind of moving beyond the internet out into the world of atoms in a way that is just really interesting. Um, and so that's, I think, genomics and biology slash uh, machine learning is a really interesting area. And then also just like transport. And that's not, uh, I mean, it's tech, and it's not, but it's not software necessarily, but like, um, you know, the electric electrification of Detroit and basically the entire auto industry that's happening right now um, is pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, there's something like a hundred new makes and models that are all electric coming out in the next two years. Um, so the internal combustion engine is is on its way out and it's kind of happening all of a sudden. And then you have a whole other generation of um, battery powered electric vehicles um, 
like, um, sorry, you know, like air taxis, there's a whole bunch of companies trying to crack that. Mm -hmm. And will that work? Who knows? But the things, the nuts they are cracking, the technological nuts they are cracking will lead to something truly dramatic. And will it mean I can go live up in a wine country, then, you know, summon an air Uber to take me into San Francisco in 20 minutes? That seems far-fetched, but there will be something along, you know, that, you know, it's much like the space program. There's a lot of stuff um, that we got from the space program, including solar panels um, that are now foundational. But um, so it's a little hard to see what's going to kind of be the thing that changes. But the, the most obvious for me is just, you know, what's happening with transport and energy. And again, this, this melding of, of biology and like high level, high powered computing. Yeah. Well, we've already seen the benefits of that over the past 18 months. I suppose this is probably more common in Silicon Valley than the the rest of the world. The idea that if something is theoretically possible, we've got a chance of cracking it. It is quite remarkable, isn't it? When you see what they managed to pull off. Yeah. I mean, because you come across totally ridiculous ideas all the time. And then you sit down with a very smart person who's working on it and they say, you know, they kind of reverse engineer. Well, like it is possible. So Mm. we can do this. And then going back to the point around the ecosystem here, it's just this place is really good at making ridiculous and possible ideas possible. Mm. They keep, they've done it many, many times over the over the past decades. And you have this whole kind of layer of people who know how to do that and who aren't afraid to actually take big bets. And then you have spectacular disasters, but you also, you know, have amazing breakthroughs, but that's all part of the, it's all part of the same equation. What about the world of crypto web three? Again, you talk about loud voices on Twitter. I don't know. I think the algorithm's working on me. I've been listening and reading a lot about that over the last six months. And it's almost all I see on my Twitter feed now. Yeah. Um, But I mean, it's your sense that, that's going to be as big as we're led to believe or does it currently sort of pale into insignificance compared to some of the other innovation? I don't know if it'll be the next thing. It'll be a a next thing though, Mm. because I think, uh, again, you know, the whole idea of blockchain and crypto is that it's basically a complete reaction to the internet we have today, which going back to the top is, you know, dominated by, five or 10 companies Mm. and you know we give everything away to them for free um they extract all of the value and we are just kind of serfs in their system and the promise of blockchain um is to do the opposite you know there's internet-based money math-based money um with you know cryptocurrencies bitcoin ethereum etc Ethereum in particular with smart contracts, you know, it opens up the possibility of anybody being able to launch an NFT, which in NFTs, non-fungible tokens are kind of a joke because they're like, here's a picture of a digital rock and I just sold it for a million dollars. And you're like, well, that's just dumb. Like, okay, this is a bubble. And it is a bubble, but, you know, 1999 was also a bubble. And it produced a whole bunch of foundational technology and companies that are still around. Mm um and ideas um and so there's going to be a lot of collateral damage and a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money from because there is a boom right happening right now and there's a lot of really bad ideas but the idea that you can 
that everybody can share in the value that is generated online instead of just, you know, having it concentrated in the hands of five to 10 companies. That is a very big idea. And the building blocks are being put in place now for that to come to pass. And you have some very smart people putting a lot of, you know, principally Andreessen Horowitz, yeah. putting billions of dollars into these ideas and laying this kind of the fundamental groundwork for this kind of new model of the way the internet can work. And people always talk about, you know, the example of Spotify, you know, there's like a, there's a cream in on Spotify who make tons of money from streams and then everybody else are living like poppers. But uh, because you get, you know, a fraction of a cent for every stream you get, you're living, you're living on Spotify's land. Mm. But if you can, as an artist can create a kind of a direct relationship with your community, with your fans via NFTs or other smart contracts, um, you can fundamentally change your, your prospects and what your business looks like and, you know, potentially make a living uh, out of that. And so that's, those are pretty big. They're very, they're pretty big ideas, but it's really fundamentally about web three to me. It seems it's about it's digital property rights, which haven't really existed until now. Yeah. And that's, that's what that is. That is the fundamental creation that is happening there. And I think that's going to lead to just this whole explosion of way different forms uh, that that's going to take. Mm. Yeah, I mean, go back to what I was uh, asking at the very beginning of our conversation related to work. There's mm. some pretty interesting use cases around NFTs, particularly um, sure. Ethereum. You know, the Axie Infinity example is an amazing one. I think you spoke to the guy who... Um, in the Philippines, Yield Guild Games, yeah. Yeah, tell, tell, tell us about that conversation. When I first... When I've, I mean, look, they've, they've since, I think, been... They've been through a couple of rounds this year and it's just gone yeah. massive, hasn't it? There are literally people in the Philippines and some other Southeast Asian countries, which are earning a living from pl playing a game. That's right, isn't it? Correct, correct. So yeah, basically, the basic idea is there's this, kind of, there's this game, Axie Infinity, and it's this kind of, it's kind of a silly game like most games are, but um, basically you can, you can generate these characters and the more you play and the better you get, you can kind of um, generate these characters that are desirable, have certain powers, have certain characteristics. And the, the brilliance of what Axie Infinity has done is they've created a market. So you create these characters and you own them. And then people um, who are also playing the game and want that character because it looks cool or has cool powers or whatever it may be, they can buy your characters. And so what has happened uh, with this company Yield Guild Games is they've set up effectively a guild of where they bring people in, they teach them how to play, they teach them how to play well. Um, and the result is that they're starting to generate these characters, which are NFTs, which have a value, which can be bought and sold as cryptocurrency, which can then be exchanged for fiat currency. So you have people in the Philippines, um, you know, uh, and I've seen a little film about this, you know, living in, in kind of developing world conditions who will maybe own, you know, a little corner store or, or less um, who are now paying their bills by playing this video game, by basically creating these characters and selling them and making what for them 
his, you know, double, triple, whatever their other wages were, living actually quite a good life by playing this game that was invented in Europe <laughs> and a bit take part in this guild um, that was set up by uh, this this guy in the Philippines who uh, was very, very early on into it. So it's just like, that is just one small example of like, oh, so this is actually meaningful economic activity um, for a swathe of the population in this case in the developing world who otherwise, you know, where if they're living in a rural place, they don't have any, they don't have any better options. This is a great option for them and all they need mm. is a smartphone. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. You work for a newspaper, which was pretty early into putting a paywall up subscriptions yeah. yeah you know with the pressures on the advertising industry and absolutely for pub for publishers that seems to be a model which more and more media businesses are adopting but there's also a massive trend toward newsletters and paid newsletters platforms like substack yeah, you really are an insider in this case because you're both looking at that market from a reporting point of view but you're also the talent. How are you seeing other journalists adapt to this new world? What do you think the opportunities are, and how do you think that's going to impact on the media industry broadly? Are we just going to be left with the very big guys, and then the long tail? Is that how it's going to be? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot happening in the media market. I mean, I think that one of the big issues um, with the dawn of kind of the internet, and I'm not going to blame this on Facebook or anything because Craigslist played as big a role as anybody else in terms of kind of eating the the industry's lunch and take basically eating a hugely important revenue stream, which is classifieds uh, mm. traditionally. Um, but, you know, there's a huge layer in the middle, as you say, local news uh, reporting that is just gone. Mm. It's just, you know, they've been gone the way of the dodo because they couldn't there it's been very difficult to create a local news business that can be sustained in this world and so that's a real problem just from a news flow perspective because a lot of the stories that you end up seeing in the times or the guardian or the telegraph or whatever are reported out because some local news reporters spent the afternoon in a council meeting and if those people aren't you know, if those people aren't there, then that doesn't kind of start this. It's basically like a kind of, it's like a feedstock for the rest of the industry. Yeah. And also quite important for society. And that, that has gone away. So that's a problem. The newsletter uh, boom is interesting because there was a boom. And I think there's some very prominent names, especially in America, who are doing wildly well out of it who already had followings and who are at a big, you know, called legacy publication. They're like, well, if I, you know, people I know go to the New York magazine or the New York times to read me. So why don't I just go up and do my own thing, ask for 10 bucks a month or whatever it is. Um, and I can, you know, instead of making 150 grand at a, you know, as a columnist at a big paper, 250 grand, whatever it is, I can make a million. And yeah. some people are doing that. Um, I think a lot of people are now also finding out that that's a very difficult, that's a very difficult trick to pull off. Mm. So there's a guy, Charlie Warzel. Um, he was the New York times. He left, he started a newsletter and he just announced this week. Um, he's going to the Atlantic and he explained in this post, it was really interesting. He's like, you know, he was doing a lot of commentary and analysis, but he kind of tried to, one, he didn't break much news. And two, he tried to steer away from like the real 
controversy, controversy stirring kind of trash talky type, um, you know, conversations that happen on Twitter and, and trying to, he tried to stay away from that. And he was like, you know, I, it was okay, mm. but it didn't go as well as I thought it was going to go. Yeah. And also writing a newsletter is a grind. It's yeah. like, you know, you're working for yourself, but you have to produce week in, week out, kind of like a podcast. <laughs> um, and so I think a lot of people are finding, you know, oh, I'm so great. And then they get out into the world and they're like, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm not the special flower I thought I was. Um, because then it's very clear. It's like you're in the market. Either people are going to pay for your stuff, your views, what you produce, or they're not. Um, so I still think there's things being worked out there, but I do think newsletters generally, it's a really interesting, it's kind of like paid blogging. Um, and there's a lot more infrastructure to make it a much, much easier to do. But I think it's kind of having its moment and it's not going anywhere, but I don't think it's going to be like, you know, tear asunder the, the kind of the, the media operating model. Yeah. I, I was always really intrigued by Kevin Kelly's idea about a thousand tree fans. And th there seems to be a lot of discussion around the passion economy and being able to yeah. you know, monetize your passions. And, and clearly the internet has allowed creators if you sort of put it broadly mm. like that to to reach audiences in different places but that is very difficult as well it makes a lot of sense this idea that you only need a thousand people to support your work and things like yeah. patreon have all you know been have been facilitating that for a while yeah but if well-established journalists with a reputation and probably a lot of followers carried over from social are struggling to do it i think it's probably mm. evidence we're not quite there yet because it's about discovery as well isn't it absolutely and if you look at some of those i mean i think there's been some stupendous marketing around this whole idea of the creator economy but i think if you look at the numbers just the sheer numbers you know there was a leak of uh there was a hack recently of twitch um and there's i can't remember the number of streamers i believe it's in the millions um the number of people who are actually making a living wage is vanishingly small. Mm. You know, of these millions, there's like, you know, it's such an infinitesimal percentage at the top. And some of the people are doing amazingly well, um, but the rest are not. And the rest will never make a living out of this. Um, even though many of those who are trying to do exactly that. And that again, is also a grind, you know, that's eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's, if you look at those numbers, um, and again, I think this will bear out uh, at Substack as that continues to develop, there is going to be a class of creator that does really, really well. But this idea that, of this kind of middle class um, creator that can kind of strike out on their own and do great, there are great stories around there. But I think for most people, that is not the story. Yeah. And for most people, it's just, it just doesn't work. It's too hard. The whole idea of the ownership economy, as you said, is that the pe people have a stake essentially in the success yeah. of whatever the organization is. Yeah. And you can see that being some way where there's a self-perpetuating cycle where people benefit from the success of others. And by extension, that means they succeed. But look, we're really early, aren't we? It's super early. Yeah. It's all very early. And we're only, you know, really tw about 25 years into the Internet. Um, yeah. So and a lot has happened um with web one and web two which which i feel like we're kind of nearing the end of but web two did create these kind of oligarchies 
Um, and now it's like, now the dot, dot, dot is Web3. Like, how is that? What's the next chapter here? Is that going to kind of, are we going to let a thousand flowers bloom? Or is it meta, you know, where the next version is still going to be controlled by one or two mm. or three or five companies? Because um, that is what is that is what Facebook is attempting to do, uh, clearly, yeah. with this whole pivot into the metaverse. One last question, actually. I'm partly interested in how you see this broadly. But I'm also from your own experience, you obviously would have gone from doing interviews in person, primarily, yeah. I guess. I mean, you know, some remotely. Yeah, yeah. What percentage of interviews are you doing in person now? Oh, it's still quite small. I would say, I don't know, 20%. I'm pretty open to working with people in different parts of the world. I think it's incredible. But I'll tell you what, I do miss seeing people in person. And I don't know about you, but... I'm sure that you must be looking forward to sitting across the table from somebody. You must get a different vibe. You must be able to get a different sense about what, what drives somebody when you're sat across with them. Or am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. You're, you're very, you're absolutely right. And I would say, so for my, for my work, and I don't think it's unique in this sense is like, you know, it's really about trust and relationships. Hmm. Um, that's just easier to, to that or happens organically over a beer or a coffee or several beers or coffees or whatever. Um, it's very, very hard to replicate that via a screen. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of what I do as a journalist is like, you know, meeting people and, you know, most of the interviews I do, most of the people I meet never appear, um, in anything I write about or any podcast they are, mm. they like, we get ideas. I bounce ideas off them. We talk about, oh, you should talk to that person, to that person, to that person, whatever it may be. But it's really about your network and, and building up trust uh, amongst good people. And that's, you know, trying to kind of engineer a casual Facebook meeting hmm. that, or sorry, casual Zoom meeting that would otherwise be, hey, let me meet you around the corner for a coffee or we take a walk through the city or whatever. That is you know, it's just not the same. Um, and I think, you know, with this, all, all this talk about the metaverse and how we're all going to live in virtual worlds and, you know, be represented by avatars. And this is the new model of like human existence. It, I think it just dramatically overestimates people's desire to live that way. Um, yeah. there will be clear use cases and I think, um, there'll be some great ones, but I think this idea that, you know, that is what people will choose. Um, I think is just is fundamentally flawed. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if you listened to the episode I had on the founder of second life. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he's been, he created second life 20 years ago. And for people that don't know, second life is the original kind of VR world. Um, and it was a huge kind of cultural touchstone for a while. And he was on cover of all the magazines and everybody's saying, you know, a billion people are going to live in the meta, it, what we're calling it the metaverse then, but live online in these virtual worlds with avatars and all that stuff. And he's like, you know, 20 years later, it's, it's thriving, but there's like 60,000 people who use it. He's like, you know, for certain people, it is absolutely what they want to do, but it is very niche. He's, a, you know, and his like line, which is very simple. He's just like, you know, real life is way more compelling. <laughs> um, so, and, and I think the problem with Silicon Valley is you have a, you have a generation of leaders and just by the nature of the business and who it attracts um, that are very technically minded often, you know, um, 
may have maybe socially awkward or more comfortable, bluntly more comfortable living a life mediated by screens. Mm. So, but they're, and they're imposing their worldview on the rest of the world that doesn't feel that way. So that's why I think the, you know, the metaverse as a concept, I think is just, you know, it's, it's a bit of marketing. I think there will be, you know, there'll be some amazing new ways to interact with technology, but you know, this idea that we're all going to kind of, you know, strap into this virtual online world. I just, I don't buy. Yeah, no, I agree. Circling right back around to uh, the very first topic of conversation. That's probably why Silicon Valley will continue to be a really important center because the people Mm. are attracted there. (laughs) It's, it's funny, isn't it? It's ironic that there's a, yeah, probably amongst only a small group of people who are looking to move us into a virtual world when actually the world which they're existing in is what's allowed them to create in the first place. No, it's a great, it's a great point. I think it's right on the nose. I mean, you know, mm. <laughs> they're here for a reason. Um, and, you know, some of the things that are being worked on or talked about seem to kind of ignore that, the fact that is right in front of them, which is indeed that, you know, uh, where you are does matter and it matters less than it used to but it still matters um, and yeah. that that applies particularly to this place Danny thanks very much for your time I'll put a link to the podcast in the show notes fantastic again. No, it was a pleasure it was, it was fun and that was my conversation with Danny Fortson thanks again to him for finding the time to chat Enjoyed. if you enjoyed the show please look up some of the other conversations I've had with guests about the impact of technology on the future of work and life. In next week's pod, I've got another great guest. I'll be talking to a business psychotherapist about the impact our early lives have on our present day careers. Until then, have a great week.